be seated. Today we're looking at uh, the latter part of 1 Corinthians 15, it's page 961 in these Bibles in the pews, or the text is printed there in the worship folder. Before I read that uh, for us, I hope you'll turn there, uh, many of you knew George Mitchell, and I say knew because uh, he served here as an assistant pastor back at, in the late 1960s and uh, early 1970s. He was a youth pastor and a number of you have told me how God used him in your life. Uh, George was used in my life. Uh, he was last here about five years ago, and he spoke uh, at one of our missions conferences. Uh, he, as the head of the missions committee, I think at that time, said he did the best job explaining faith promise of any person we've asked to speak. Um, George uh, passed away his funerals this afternoon. Um, some kind of heart attack, which led to a single car accident, which led to life support, which led to the funeral uh, this afternoon. But most of you already know this uh, it, because he, it was several days ago that he he died. And uh, but he was he was greatly loved and a great servant, uh, not only in this church but in others. So the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, the very large PCA church, he was for many years the night the Sunday night preacher. Uh, George was an excellent preacher. First uh, Corinthians 15, and somewhat related, very related, very pertinent, is uh, still about the resurrection. Now, I'll begin reading in verse 20, uh, but let me just tell you what's happened leading up to this. In the first part of the chapter, the Apostle Paul is just given the facts of the resurrection of Christ. Very briefly, he was dead, he was, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, he appeared to numerous people over a period of 40 days. Then in the next passage, verses 13 to 19, that we looked at last week, he talked about the what ifs, there is, if there is no resurrection, if Christ was still dead, if Christ was still in the tomb, our preaching is in vain, our dead in Christ who've already died are lost forever, we of all people are most to be pitied. Uh, he, he did that, and now he totally changes in verse 20 and it says Christ is raised. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? 
If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, since the beginning of time, people have asked the question, if a man dies again, will he live again? And we pray now that you would give us confirmation of where we stand with you after this life. Use this passage toward that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us have learned uh, the ins and outs of when we're talking to someone and they tell us maybe even a compliment, and then the word but comes. So it was really, it was, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me to dinner tonight, but uh, we know that from that point on is all that matters. What came before does not really matter. Now this was impressed on me in a very unusual way years ago when I had finished college and was serving on a staff of the church in Boca Raton, Florida, as a youth director. And there was some grand, this, this couple in the church were grandparents to a, son, to a grandson named Glenn. Glenn was about 20 years old or so. His parents had divorced. They were living elsewhere. So the grandparents basically were, were caring for uh, Glenn. And Glenn had been arrested for selling cocaine, a large amount of cocaine, too. And the lawyer they hired was specialized in defending drug cases like that. The trial was to take place in Broward County, where Fort Lauderdale is. And so they came and talked to me. The lawyer wanted them, the family, to get a representative from his church. They wanted his parents there. They flew in from wherever it was they were living at that time separately. The grandparents, and it seemed like there might have been somebody else there too. He wanted to show the judge all the support network that was in Glenn's life and hope for some leniency. We go into this uh, large courtroom, a lot of people there. Judge comes out, we're standing, and he's a very distinguished-looking man, big, big man, strong-looking, and kind of silver hair with wire-rimmed glasses and commanding attention in that room. And when we got to Glenn's case, the lawyer, I forgot his name, I'll just call him Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith went before the judge and pointed to each of us that were seated, well now standing, uh, explaining this is the youth director from his church that he has met with Glenn and Glenn will be meeting with him. These are his parents, these are, you know, all these people who were kind of like advocates in a sense for Glenn. And the judge... (laughs) Uh, It's funny how some things you never forget. He looked over, and he looked at us, but he made his remarks to the lawyer. He said, "Uh, Mr. Smith, I have no doubt that every one of these people standing here wants the best for Glenn. I have no doubt that they care for him and love him. And then he he looked at me, and he said, it seems to me the youth director should have gotten with him before this happened. And then he said back to the lawyer, 
after saying all these things of affirming what had just happened, he said, but you seem to be forgetting something here, Mr. Smith, and that is that a crime has been committed, a very serious crime at that. The gavel came down, the handcuffs went on, Glenn was led away, parents were there crying. It all seemed to happen so quick, and since that day, if I, regardless of what someone's telling me, I'm waiting for the but to come, and Paul gives it to us here in verse 20. He's told us the facts of the resurrection. He's told us hypothetically, what if Jesus is still in the grave? But he rose. But in fact, it says, Christ has been raised from the dead. So what we have today is not a defense trying to prove that the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ took place. He's not even giving us the implications of if Jesus is still in the grave, what would that imply for us? Now he's going to say Christ is resurrected, and he's going to talk about the resurrection of followers of Christ. He's going to talk about our resurrection if we're in Christ. Something we rarely think about, do we? Well, let's think about it together right now. He begins with three images to describe the benefits of knowing that our bodies will one day be resurrected, even as Christ's body was. And the first image to show us the benefits is found in verses 20 and 23, and that's the word firstfruits. It says, Christ is, has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, that's a strange word. Uh, it comes from the Old Testament. There was a feast of the firstfruits. Hear these words from Leviticus 23 about this particular feast. Uh, feast. When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So imagine, if you will, you're an Israelite living in those days. You have a plot of land. You've grown wheat or some kind of grain there. And now the harvest is coming in, and you take the initial supply of the harvest, and you take it to the priest, the Jewish priest, and you offer it to the Lord like a tithe today. You take a portion of what God has given to you, and you offer it. Part of you offering it is saying, I realize the entire harvest belongs to God, but this is a portion. And this is the first part of the portion which is given by faith because you're not sure if the rest will actually come in. So you give that to the priest, and then the priest was to offer it to the Lord. Pardon me. Paul now says that Christ is the first fruits. He is the first of a large harvest that will come later. But he's the first one that's presented to God. Now, I, I mentioned this at the first service. I don't come from a background, and probably most of you don't, where people still practice giving first fruits. Uh, in an inquirer's class several years ago, there was a couple who came from a, a church background, a denominational background, that they practiced giving first fruits. Now, they had some kind of uh, garden or small farm, and they had these vegetables, and the wife in front of the class asked me, Who do we bring our first fruits to? And I very insightfully said, What? I, I didn't know what she was talking about. And she said, I've got this 
either corn or, or uh, so forth and all this, and who do we bring the first fruits to? She meant someone on the church staff. Thankfully, John Kinzer was in there and said, you bring them to me. <laughs> and I was glad he was there and looked out for himself in that situation. He knew what she was talking about. I didn't. But that was what she was talking She was talking about this, this, this uh, actions that took place back in Levi- the book of Leviticus. Now, Christ is the first fruits. And then he says, it's the first, still in verse 20, of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, what does that mean? To believers, to believers in Christ, death is sleep. Now, Paul didn't uh, invent using this term. He got it from Christ himself. We know in Mark chapter 5, Jesus is met by a very desperate man. The man is desperate because he has a daughter who is very sick, almost sick to death. And he begs Jesus to go with him to see the daughter. And as they, Jesus agrees, and as they near the house, as they approach the house, they receive news that the daughter has died. And as was customary that day, there are people mourning in the house. And it's very loud. There's weeping and wailing. And when they arrive at the house, when they walk in, Jesus says to the mourners, we we know from Mark chapter 5, what is all the commotion? She's not dead. She is asleep. Well, that would, they, they, they took him literally and they mocked him. Well, what did Jesus mean? See, death is permanent, but sleep is temporary. Death is the end of life. Sleep is the continuation of life. That's why, and I mention this almost at every funeral service I lead, that is why the early Christians began to call what the Romans called graveyards, they began to call them cemeteries, which means a sleeping place. It's a Christian term because of their view that the body here is sleeping. The soul goes immediately to be with the Lord. If I were to die this afternoon, if you, fellow believer, were to die today or tomorrow, your soul, according to the Bible, goes immediately to be with the Lord. Your body remains here, and that's what is sleeping. And he uses the term sleep because he's going to raise it one day. It's going to be resurrected. All right, that's the first image, first fruits. The second image is Adam in verses 21 to 23. For as the second image of the benefits of the resurrection. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now the premier passage in the Bible comparing Adam or contrasting Adam and Jesus Christ is Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 5 verses 12 to 21. Romans 5, 12 to 21. And that's much more detailed, but this, it says more about this same subject. The Bible teaches that our ancient foreparents, Adam, the word which meant from the ground, and Eve, whom he named mother of life, were created with the same senses that you and I are created. We don't know what color they were. We don't know what language they spoke. We don't know the size. We don't know their ages. But we do know that they had the same senses we had plus one. The plus one was a spiritual sense that they had, literally where they could walk and talk with God in the garden that he had made for them, and there was no uh, 
friction of any sort. They could, there was total openness between them. And God gave them one prohibition, not to eat of a certain tree. We aren't told why it was that tree or exactly what it was. It was just a prohibition with the threat of the punishment that if you eat of it in that day, you will surely, it's emphatic, you will surely die. Well, you know the story. They did eat it, but did they die? No. They lived a long time after that, physically. They had children and so forth. I mean, they, they lived a long time. They died that day, at that moment, spiritually. That spiritual sense that they had had was now gone. It was destroyed. It was replaced with guilt and shame and fear. They hide from God. They hide from one another with their clothes. Everything had changed in a moment's time. And we and every person born since them has inherited from Adam a sinful nature. And so verse 21 here says, For as by a man came death... Now I know... Some, I don't in any way assume everyone here likes what I just said. Uh, I have a pastor friend who, when he talked about this, at this point, a man got up in anger and walked out. Because doesn't it sound unfair that God, that we're born with sinful natures because of the action of another? I mean, we don't like that, that kind of thinking. That's bad news. It is. Thankfully, it doesn't stop there. Now, the good news Verses 21 and 22. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now we get to the good part. Adam and Christ are called our federal head. In other words, our representative. Adam represented, represented us and he failed and we inherit his failure. Christ as our federal head now has obtained something for us. He has represented us. And now through faith in him, we have that imputed to us. The Puritans used to talk about being hooked on the belt of Adam's righteousness or wickedness. Imagine, if you will, a glacier, a steep glacier, and mountain climbers going across that glacier, hooked together, ropes running from each to the other, and the glacier has a steep incline and then dropping off just a what seems uh, an abyss with a bottomless abyss. And the first person, Adam, falls, and the second person is dragged, and then the third, and each one as the rope pulls them over because of the person in the, in the front that you're hooked to. But then God takes this hook and hooks us to the belt buckle of Christ. And now through his righteousness, it's like he plants his stake there in the ice and it holds and now he is our federal head we have his righteousness his obedience to God his keeping God's law in every respect so we now have all those benefits imputed to us just as we had the negative from Adam imputed to us now that's good news the first Adam disobeyed God and brought sin and death into the world but the last Adam Christ obeyed the Father and brought life. So that's the second image that he uses. And he says in verse 23 that there is an order to this. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. It says at the beginning, but each in his own order. That means sequence. 
At his coming then, Christ will raise up all those who are believers in him all through the ages. And it won't be a small crowd. It'll be a harvest. Jesus used that image of a harvest in the Gospels. In Matthew 9, it said, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, Matthew 9 tells us, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So he views humanity as this huge harvest that to send out laborers who take the gospel and bring people in who will be harvested there for the Lord. And now in the book of Revelation, we have what those will say. In Revelation chapter 5, looking ahead, God gives John, the disciple John, this vision of the end of time as we know it. And he says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. Speaking of Christ, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And listen to the description of the people he ransomed. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. You know what also it says in Revelation? It will be a multitude no one can number. Hey, we watch sports today. You see in the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and they'll say, hey, 79,013 people were here at this game today. Or some uh, larger venues like that. This multitude will be such no one can even number it. We tend to think of of believers in the church today is just being a small, tiny minority, and yet God is harvesting for himself a multitude. So Paul describes the benefits of the resurrection with those images, the first fruit, Adam, and then the third one he uses is the kingdom in verses 24 to 28. Now, this, someone told me after the first service, they said, I find 1 Corinthians to be one of the most complicated books in the Bible. And, and this paragraph probably is why some people think that. This, uh, who's subject to and presents to subject to, who is subject to, so forth. Let me try and just give it to you in a nutshell. Uh, godly students of the Bible have not always agreed on the details of what will happen leading up to the return of Christ. But some things are assumed and are very clear in the Bible, such as Jesus reigns in heaven today, Okay. All authority is under his feet. Satan and people are able to exercise choice, but God is sovereignly in control. And the resurrection of the saved has not yet taken place, nor the resurrection of the lost. We are certain about those things. So what is this kingdom it's describing that God the Son is going to present to God the Father? Well, it's not a geographical area. It's not some planet out past Jupiter or something like that. Christ told his disciples, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's wherever Christ reigns. Every time a person is converted to Christianity, the kingdom of God expands just a little bit. 
The kingdom has increased and expanded with each, and all of this is leading up to this great culminating event when Christ the Son will hand over this kingdom to God the Father. When all of his enemies have been put to death and the last or have been destroyed and the last enemy to be destroyed will be death itself. Now Paul wanted them to see, wanted the Corinthians, wants us to see that the resurrection of Christ was not an isolated event. Rather, it was the first event that will culminate with our redemption. It's the beginning of something which is now going on. And so where do we fit in this? Okay, y'all still with me? I had a Sunday school teacher after the first service say, hey, Chip, I asked my class this morning, do y'all remember anything from the sermon? And every one of them said no. Okay, so that really built my confidence, right? Thanks, thanks, you know who you are that told me that, right before the service. We are tweeners. We're between the first coming of Christ and his resurrection and our resurrection at his second coming. We're somewhere in between here. Now, we don't know how much longer it will be before he comes again, but he will come back. As certain as that happened in history, this will happen. So what are the present benefits of knowing that we'll have resurrected bodies? Well, in verses 29 to 34... He mentions four areas of the Christian life, Christian experience, touched by the fact of the resurrection. Now, in a nutshell, what's this baptism of the dead? Apparently, it's not commended in the New Testament. It's not taught in the New Testament. Paul here is not in any way commending it. He would have condemned it. Probably it was one of the first things he did when he went there. The idea was, okay, I have this relative that I love very much, but they died and they did not profess faith in Christ. I want to be baptized on that person's behalf so that they might could be saved. Paul, all he does, apparently some of that was still going on in Corinth, and he just, he doesn't, he doesn't say it's a good thing to do. At this point, in this, he doesn't say it's a bad thing to do. He just says, if there is no resurrection, why are you doing that? Because there were people in Corinth that taught there is no resurrection of the body. The body and the soul are different. What I do with my body doesn't matter. I can live a life of immorality. I can go to the temple prostitutes, as some of them were doing. Uh, in this immoral Corinthian culture, and, but all that matters is my soul. If my soul is right with God, that's all that counts. That's the only thing that will last. So I can take my body and use it for however I want to. Pleasure of, of any type. It doesn't matter. There's no consequence. And Paul says, <laughs> no, why bother then with these baptisms of the dead if there is no resurrection? And then he says about suffering in verses 30 to 32. I die daily. He's talking about the physical dangers he and others that were servants of Christ endured. And he says, if there's no resurrection, if, there's, if my body's not going to be resurrected, then why not just live, let us eat, drink, and for tomorrow we shall die. That is an old Greek saying, and it's a little bit longer. The original was, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we shall die, and we die like dogs. In other words, there'll be nothing else. C.S. Lewis thought there'd be animals in heaven. I'm just sorry, that's another point. At judgment, God deals with the whole person, not just the soul. So what will happen? What will happen when, when you die in Christ? 
Well, this is where our Westminster Confession of Faith is not Scripture. It doesn't have the authority of Scripture. It's a good summary of what the Bible teaches on subjects. In chapter 32, the next to the last chapter, it, it says this about the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead. The bodies of men and women, humanity, after death return to dust and see corruption, meaning they deteriorate. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places... For souls separated from their bodies, the scriptures acknowledge none. So at death, believer, your soul will immediately go into the presence of God. But your body will remain here in whatever form. Someone asked me after the first service, boy, that first service crowd, they were listening today, except for the kids. Uh, what about cremation? I said, look, when you get into God's, God's got away, you, when you think of people, soldiers that have been blown to bits by explosions and fires and everything, I mean, it's just, you can't get into that. I mean, God is going to bring these bodies together just like with Christ, and it's going to be similar but different. Some of you think, oh, no, this is bad news. I don't want this body in heaven for eternity. Well, it will be a glorified body, and it will be perfect. No, we aren't told how old it will be. Some say uh, 30, because that's when Christ began his public ministry. I don't know. No one knows. Um, it was similar but different. After Christ was resurrected, his disciples didn't recognize him. They had to have their eyes open before they could tell it was him. Some, he was similar but different. It will be a glorified body. And it will be better than you can imagine. All right, quickly now. The third reason, implication of the resurrection for us in the present is, he says, uh, then we should separate ourselves from sin. If there is no resurrection in verses 33 and 34, then what we do with our bodies will have no bearing. Paul tells him to wake up. The believer who's compromising with sin has no witness to the lost around him. You know who needs you to live for Christ? <laughs> the unbelievers in your life. Most of us here could give our testimonies and we would say that we came to Christ through the witness, meaning we watched the life of a fellow Christian. They might have been a relative, it might have been a parent, it might have been a friend at school. I had two friends at school that the impact they made on me was unbelievable. They weren't perfect, I'm not talking about perfection, they were sinners just like I was, but they had a passion for Christ that just stood out, and I noticed it. I had a close friend from college, and he went to law school, and he clerked one summer down in Fort Lauderdale. And before he went to clerk at this large firm, he asked some advice from an older Christian man, who a businessman in Birmingham, as to what advice do you have for me when I, for the... 10 or 12 weeks I'll be down there, he said, here's my advice. If there are activities that you, by your conscience, cannot participate in after work, 
then if you're invited and you think I can't do that, tell the person why up front at the very beginning. Or else there'll be presumption, he doesn't like me, uh, he doesn't like people, he's not sociable, but if you feel I really can't go to that place, then say, really, my, I'm a Christian and my conscience won't allow me, thank you for the invitation, but I just can't go. He said that is far better. Okay, last of all, last application, think much of the, of the return of Christ, the future return of Christ. I don't think about it enough. Maybe you do, but if not, think more about it. Paul, we would say today, he was obsessed with it. He lived with anticipation. I think there's probably a special reward in heaven for my Sunday school teachers when I was young, because I was terrible. And my classmates you know, were terrible. We would literally carry on conversations about what we'd done the night before while the teacher was talking in a room that was uh, about the size of this little area to my right. I mean, it, we were terrible. And uh, I, I just wasn't interested. I couldn't care less. Um, and the teachers in that setting were afraid to be disciplinarian, so we took every advantage of it. And, and they all seemed uh, ancient to me. I mean, anybody over 30 at that time was a fossil in my mind. So I, I, I can't recall any lessons from my elementary to junior high age. I can't recall the teacher. I remember one teacher's name. Um, but here's what I remember. On the outskirts of the city where I grew up, there was a munitions plant that blew up one night, well, early one morning, around 2 a.m. And our Sunday school teacher, uh, it was either the next day or a week later, said that because it, it shook houses for miles, you know, when it blew up, she said she awaked to the sound of this boom, and the first thought to her brain was, he's returned. Nine years of Sunday school. That's all I remember. But that, it was worth it. It was worth it for that, woman, for that moment to meet a person who lived every day with anticipation that he's coming back and was looking for. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the comfort you give us to know that we will spend eternity with you in Christ. If I, perhaps someone is here that has no faith, or has not yet trusted him, may you give them the gift of faith today to believe that, that we can receive from that second Adam the same things but better that we receive from Adam, that the righteousness of Christ is given to us and forgiveness of sins is given to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to pronounce a benediction and then ask you to remain standing uh, as we sing together, uh, He Who is Mighty, and note carefully the words as we sing that. Please stand, if you will, for the benediction, and then remain standing as we sing. The benediction from Corinthians. Now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.